On this episode of the BYO Nano Podcast, I'll talk with Luke Truman, the facilities manager at Allagash Brewing Company, about managing the liquid leaving the brewery. Patrick Coyne and Ray Mowry, two of the owners behind Punch Buggy Brewing in Philadelphia, talk about brewing small and lessons learned after being open for just only a few months. And attorney Peter Lowe sits down to talk about HR law essentials for small breweries. This is John Hall, and welcome to the BYO Nano Podcast. Episode 3 finds me at various points along the East Coast to bring you insights, commentary, and interviews with professionals who are here to help you make better beer and understand how to successfully run a business. And we're sponsored by Blickman Engineering. Blickman Engineering Pro Brewing is now offering gas-fired systems. Quiet, efficient, powerful. The 3.5-barrel gas-fired systems offer automatic temperature control and fully enclosed burner boxes. The burner boxes help keep operating costs low by keeping the heat on your kettle, not in your room. Perfect for tap rooms and neighborhood breweries, the 3.5-barrel gas-fired UL-CUL rated brew house starts at $16,999. Order yours today. Visit BlickmanPro.com for more information. Again, that's BlickmanPro.com. And the show is also sponsored by Vermont Tech. Are you ready to learn craft distilling as a profession? Check out vtc.edu slash distilling to get started. The five-day course is offered by the Institute of Applied Agriculture and Food Systems and is packed with hands-on experience, lectures, demos, process training, and distillery visits. The course brings students into direct contact with a variety of processes involved in building, operating, and working in the distilling industry, while still emphasizing scratch distillation from local ingredients. The five-day course runs May 4th through 8th in Randolph Center, Vermont. Visit vtc.edu slash distilling. And save the dates on your calendar for this year's NanoCon, taking place in San Diego, November 6th and 7th. Full program details on the two days of brewing and business seminars targeted for nanobreweries is available at byo.com slash nanocon. Now, let's dive into the show. A few days ago, I was in Portland, Maine for the New England Brewers Summit, and as you do when you're in town, I stopped by Allagash for a pint. Okay, two pints. And I had the chance to talk with Luke Truman, the facilities manager of the brewery, about sustainability efforts. As he explains, as the craft industry has grown, so has its impact on wastewater treatment systems and the environment. This has led to more focus on the industry and municipalities trying to figure out how to fairly regulate the industry. Our conversation gets into the makeup of brewery wastewater, both effluent and stormwater, and why properly managing these streams matters. And Luke offers some suggestions for best practices. So with regards to effluent, you, you must consider um, not, just, not just wastewater, but also um, side streaming products or the likes of, say, spent grain. So not just effluent going down the drain, but also stormwater. Um, so if you have, say, spent grain stored outside, or any other materials um, and the potential for rain to essentially wash those materials down the drain, um, that, can, that can adversely impact waterways. And then with regards to effluent, you're talking about, um, you're talking about the water itself, but then anything that's in the water. Um, so I would consider um, you know, your tube being a big one um, any, any beer going down the drain, um, and any, 
you know, cleaning, cleaning chemicals um, mixed in with water. So essentially driving for driving high or low pH. Um, I guess those are some of the some of the things to consider. I mean, when when we think about being in our homes, though, there's just a lot of things that just go down the drain casually. What makes a brewery different? Uh, so with a brewery, you're talking about solids um, being one, one, one factor, and then you're talking about biological oxygen demand, and then um, pH. So with solids, um, you essentially can, can negatively impact um, pipelines, um, both within the brewery, and then if you're on a public water system or on a septic system, um, any solids going down the drain have to be dealt with somewhere along the line. And then if you look at pH, if you have a, if you have a low pH, um, that can corrode pipe, pipes and, um, you know, can cause all sorts of trouble. And then you can, you can actually see water leaching into, into groundwater, yeah. um, if you have leaky pipes and then, uh, high pH can cause troubles as well. Um, so alkalinity, um, build up essentially with high pH and then biological oxygen demand, um, a typical household, you're looking at a concentration of 250 milligrams per liter, uh, brewery, um, you know, say, say spent yeast, for example, or yeast in general, um, or beer, you're looking at a significantly higher number. So a typical brewery doing a very good job, you're looking at concentrations of 3,000 milligrams per, per liter wow. or more. Yeah. So that, those, that, that essentially the way that biological oxygen demand works is that, that, that um, the microbes in that effluent are competing for oxygen. So what it can do with a, in a wastewater treatment plant is compete with the, the good microbes that they want to keep alive to, you know, eat, eat the um, undesirable materials in wastewater. And, and if you're talking about potentially discharging, like overflows, con combined sewer overflows. Um, so if a, if a wastewater plant is overwhelmed, so Allagash Brewing Company is on in a city portland maine that is is very old with a very old infrastructure so if we get a, a rain um significant rain then what can happen is that that sewer plant wastewater plant is overwhelmed yeah. so thus you wind up with or pump stations are overwhelmed you wind up with effluent going into or whatever's in that yeah in that stormwater mixing with what is going down people's drains or companies' drains and can wind up in a waterway. So if you're talking about high biological oxygen demand, then you're, you're feeding into uh, you know, a system that can, can really negatively impact waterways. So why is it important though? To, like, why should breweries be thinking about this? Is, like, what are some of the impacts? I mean, if you want to look at the, if you want to look at the, the most obvious impact, um, or I guess most obvious 
impact on a brewery is is the fact that there are so many breweries now and we have a combined impact that that if we act irresponsibly there is no way to to hide bad actors in our current yeah scenario so so you're talking about you know regulation and money being a big one if we act responsible like the reason regulation exists is because people tend to or organizations either don't know or choose to act in a selfish manner so you've got to you know act responsibly to make sure that that you are uh, considered a responsible industry and the fact that our our wastewater is uh the formulation that it that it is a you know kind of a high high test effluent means we have to act more responsibly than say a household sure so if you're so you're obviously a large brewery you guys did like a hundred thousand barrels or so last year but if you're even a small brewery what are some of the steps that you should be taking on each day you know that they're that you're using these systems um in order to achieve best practices so i would say the easy things would be to to try to keep your your highest concentration effluence from going down the drain so you know maintaining quality beer means you're dumping less beer maintaining or trying to optimize your process in a way to where you're you're having seeing less beer loss um means you're you're putting less less undesirable effluent down the drain that's interesting yeah um, and also saves you. So yeah, but it's not just end product, but it, it really is. It, it's foresight as well. Yeah, and then um, solids being another one. There are some really cheap uh, kind of DIY systems. For example, um, we're going to show a video tomorrow that's uh, that we made on. You're going to be at the New England Brewers the Conference. New, yeah, talk. Yes. but for folks who are listening on the radio. Yeah. So yeah. so there's a conference tomorrow that that um, <laughs> a, a video has been made that hasn't been publicized yet, but it's it's using a uh, chemical drum and a super sack, and using the super sack as a filter for hot side tube to essentially um, filter that from this 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 tube from 400 some thousand milligrams per liter down to 400 milligrams per liter really by using waste materials right and, and, and pretty much anybody of any size can do this yeah yeah very simple and and free right so it's all stuff you have on hand yeah, yeah. or or another brewery around does sure so there are just super simple ways um so that's that's one thing because any solids you put down the drain for one you're you're asking for trouble in-house right that's going to cost you money it's going to cost you slow drains it's going to really could be annoying could could cause trouble down the line as well um and then for two managing your side streaming products so your spent grains in a way to to not allow the excess um liquids and or starches sugars to leave your facility so thus keeping keeping these materials in, in sealed containers 
um, and out of the storm systems. And then also your, your um, CIP processes, um, clean in place, doing something simple like, say, having an IBC tote and collecting wastewater from cleaning tanks in a way to where you can adjust the pH before you before you put that down the drain. So thus you're not you're not feeding high or low pH effluent into the drain. And these are things that you should start off when you are small and just build upon as you go. Yeah. What's the forward thinking benefit of all this? Um, I mean, I, I guess responsibility being, <laughs> being the biggest one. Um, and then self-preservation. I mean, we are a thriving industry and, and for one, you know, being, being environmentally responsible leads to, leads to money savings as well. So like I was saying with beer loss, the more beer you, you are able to save, the more money you're able to make per barrel. What would you like to see on a very basic level breweries consider or breweries implement? I mean, based I, on I, your own experiences, I would say the the number one thing. So, so kind of responsible processes in house and and um, more of a, a focus in house on on individual impact. Let's say, um, I think the industry does a really good job of sharing best practices. I don't think enough breweries take advantage of that. Enough don't enough breweries don't take advantage of the fact that we are a very collaborative and open door industry. And so a lot of breweries do projects, say, say, um, build outs, um, additions, uh, you know, new buildings. They'll go through the process of designing and building a facility without talking to enough breweries in the neighborhood or in the, in the town on the same, wastewater treatment plant or if it's a septic brewery you know talking to other breweries that have septic systems and seeing what they can do ahead of time to save themselves a lot of effort and money in the long run just i think the the what i would love to see more breweries do is is look out you know say best case scenario 20 years from now here's where i'll be here's what I can do now based on the resources that I have access to, which, you know, not only other breweries, but also the Brewers Association and, you know, in, in my, my uh, priority, I guess, my, my field of somewhat expertise would be the sustainability field. Like, there's a vast amount of expertise that is offered through the Brewers Association that, you know, you're paying for yeah. as a member. And All you, have you to should do take is advantage of it. Look or just ask. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that I mean I, I understand that we don't especially as a small brewer, you don't have the the bandwidth to to have sustainability be your number one focus. Like that is logical, that makes sense. I totally get that. But if you just want to look at it as as sheer logical build out money savings long-term success keeping the regulators off your back not wasting money unnecessarily like just 
preparation, right? For success. Yeah. You know, there's, there's one, one thing that, that we have that in place that saves us a significant amount of money. And we obviously made a lot of mistakes and learned and built out and just, you know, could save somebody else on making the same mistakes. But what we have in place are a lot of sub meters for our incoming water to separate process water from sanit sanitary waste or sanitary water. And then, uh, flow meters on our effluent that goes, goes to the water district. Cause you lose a significant amount of money in your spent or sorry, not money. You lose a significant amount of water in your spent grain, your spent yeast and trube in evaporation in just loss in general that, you know, municipalities are s still just trying to figure out how to regulate the brewing industry and how to interact with the brewing industry. And so they're, they're taking, they're taking their guidance from, from, you know, other municipalities that have dealt with breweries, but the, the calculations, the formulas aren't perfect. Yeah. And so if you set yourself up to, to have, you know, ev even having your, plumbing set up to where it's easy to install submeters and separate process from, from sanitary. Um, and you know, even with the, with a build out, say in a, in a facility, that's, that's a leased facility. Those are the type of types of things that you can do. And, and then, you know, if you're going to add, say any sort of floor drains, if you're going to have a facility built out to, be able to house a brewery like those are the times to take advantage of the resources at hand the expertise that's available for zero money and you know get the help you need and set yourself up to where you're not fighting fighting a losing battle and the biggest part being freeing yourself up to focus on the beer and the customers and the things that matter most and not having to be just fighting you know wastewater and side streams and you know being prepared yeah planning and foresight and also just doing the right thing yeah cool luke thanks for sitting down with me i really appreciate you taking the time and uh sharing your expertise yeah thanks for having me john cheers cheers For our brewery profile this month, I traveled to the city of brotherly love and talked with Patrick Coyne and Ray Mowry, two of the six co-owners of Punch Buggy Brewing, one of the newest and smallest breweries in Philly. They say their goal is to shake up the beer scene in the old Kensington neighborhood with fresh, ever-rotating flavors. That's where the conversation starts, with me asking them how they plan to do that and how it's been going since they opened their doors a few months ago. The first voice you'll hear is Patrick who is also one of the brewers. Well, we only really have been open for about seven months now, but uh, I think a lot of it is creativity, uh, trying to separate yourself from the competition. What makes yourself different? Uh, we, we Identity. Went, say that again? Identity. Identity. Identity, exactly. Uh, we wanted to separate ourselves with uh, a nice, inviting space. Uh, it's It's got an industrial feel to it, but... You know, we try to wrap it in art and uh, just the best beer that we can brew. 
Uh, Ray, Ray, what are your thoughts on that? Well, well we do um, get a lot of comments, customer comments, that they like the um, you know, more or less intimate feel of the space. Um, they, it's almost the, the anti-large uh, brewery. I don't want to name any, but... Um, well, no, but, but that's an interesting thing, though. It, that does your brewery size directly correlate to your brewery space? Sure. Sure. How so? Uh, yeah, I mean, uh, I think having a one-barrel system, which is what we started out with, allows us to do a lot of things that the larger, one, larger breweries can't. Uh, we can get very creative without... Uh, getting too bogged down with, you know, if this doesn't turn out, can we dump it? Because it really, it's it's just, you know, a few hundred dollars and uh, eight hours of brewing that we're dumping down the drain. Um, you know, so... Uh, do, you, do you find yourself dumping a lot of beer? No. I mean, in the beginning, we did a little bit. Uh, we ran into, you know, some problems. Our, uh, what are our, you brewing on right now, by the way? We are brewing on a one-barrel stout system. Okay. Yeah. It's, uh, you know, we, we worked with it with the space, uh, you know, and, and to, your, to your question, um, yeah, I think our, our seating is, is 36 right now, right? Roughly, yeah. Yeah, 36. So uh, right now we're, we're just keeping up with, uh, with demand. And, uh, you know, we're brewing three to four times a week. So. And a barrel at a time. What's that? At a barrel at a time. Exactly. Barrel at a time. So when you are that small, there, there's a lot of flexibility that you have of just trying to screw around and, hey, let's try this and let's see what goes out there. And, and, and chances are you could probably you know, serve that entire batch to somebody in your tap room. But then there's also demand, right? There, there, there's people who come in through a Google search, through a Yelp search, and that they say, oh, you're a brewery. And then they walk in and they have certain expectations. Um, you know, be it if they visited a Dogfish Head in the past or a Sam Adams in the past or, or, or some sort of, you know, even Yards in town or Dock Street or whoever in town. And then they're, they're, they're finding you guys, uh, as it were. How do you, what's the approach that you found has worked in the last couple of months of meeting consumer expectations versus what you might want to do as or did as home brewers um, I, I know um, obviously you can't please everybody but um, from speaking to a lot of the customers they I, I'd say a good amount of them um, know what to expect from us you occasionally get a pe you know if we, if we if we have two IPAs on one day you know, they'll come in and they'll be like, oh, you're another one of these IPA places. <laughs> um, and then recently we had three stouts on and someone came in and complained, why don't you have more IPAs? So overall, though, the majority of the customers do kind of know what to expect from us. And we have a lot of regulars that are um, excited to come in every week or two and find that we have a whole new set of beers on. That's, that's what they really enjoy. So... Sure, sure. Yeah, at the same point, you, you have some people that are stout people that will come in and love that we have three stouts on at one time. So, you know, it's, it's trying to find a nice balance. So, Patrick, as a brewer, then, how do you find that balance? Uh, it's pretty difficult. So we're, 
<laughs> you know, oh, um, yeah. yeah. I'm uh, I'm actually reading uh, Sam's book on leadership right now. Sam Calagione yes, from Dogfish Head, yeah. yes. who was just here. Uh, yeah. But he. That's a whole different show. It's <laughs> yeah. a whole different show. Yeah. Um, you know, he's, he's a little bigger. <laughs> he's he's um, he, he talks about uh, trying to find that balance and trying to plan ahead. Yeah, trying to find that balance and plan ahead. You know. Uh, months in advance to where we, we were just kind of shooting from the hip in the beginning, not not really planning our brews, just brewing whatever we wanted to, really. Uh, so now, you know, over the last seven months, I think we've gotten better and better about planning our beers out. Ray's do, definitely helped out with that. Do you have to? Like, now that you're open, do you have to start it? to plan your brews out because there, there's certain things Definitely. about like being a home brewer where it's like, all right, well, if I want my Irish stout on uh, for St. Patrick's day, I'm going to have to brew in early February or thereabouts, uh, yes. you know, to, so if are, are you approaching it the same way now? And uh, what's that different from when you opened? Yes. And no, I mean, we, we, so if we brew it too early, if we brew it too early, then uh, we run risk of, of running out. Uh, plus it's tying up some of the equipment. So we got we to tie it, you know, time it exactly uh, when, when we want the beer to go on and when we want it to finish and then what, what we want it to back, back it up with. So, it's so let me back up. When, when we show up at Punch Buggy, do you have one-barrel fermenters, two-barrel fermenters? Like, where are you guys? Yeah, so one-barrel spike fermenters. Okay. Uh, it's actually Unitanks. We just upgraded everything to Unitanks now. We started out with plastic, which I never recommend if you're actually starting a brewery. Why not? It just, I know the answer, but I yeah, just want to hear I what mean, you it, say. I mean, it leads, uh, there's, there's too much chance for infection and for air to get in. And if you don't time things absolutely perfectly, then, uh, then you could spoil a beer. Um, Going back to um, uh, when we were talking earlier about dumping a few beers, I believe all the beers that we did have to dump, and, and there were only, you know, maybe four batches, um, were all brewed into plastic. Since we've upgraded to the stainless, we haven't had to dump anything, and um, we've been getting more positive reviews, I'd say. As, as you talk to, or uh, on this show, we're talking to small nano brewers. Is there ever a reason to have plastic? I mean, but budget-wise, aside from early on? No. I would say if you don't have the budget and, you know, again, this is just going off experience. I mean, you, you could. You know, we did. But I think uh, we suffered because of it. I think if we would have just held off for three more months, saved up a little bit more money, and gone with stainless right from the beginning, uh, you know, untapped reviews are, are pretty big these days, so... Uh, our untapped reviews could have been great right from the beginning. So now we're playing that game to where we're, we're, we're uh, you know, trying to make up for those uh, average beers back in the beginning. Um, but, you know, constantly uh, doing upgrades right now and, and, you know, making better beer is, is our goal. And, uh, you know, I think every week we're getting better and better and uh, better with everything, really, documentation and and being able to repeat these beers over and over again, too. And, and, and that's the thing. It's repetition, right? I mean, it's it's the homebrewer muscle memory. It's the homebrewer, you know, you, you you write in cursive on the blackboard until the lesson sinks in kind of thing, right? And, and, and But when you're a small brewery, it seems like it's much more acute because even if you're talking about a couple hundred bucks that you might dump down the drain, if you're a small brewery, your margins are 
couple of hundred bucks. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I think the, the thing that we have going for us in that aspect is uh, we have, so we have four brewers. Yeah. Uh, generally, each one of us brews one time a week. Um, How do you divvy up those responsibilities? Like, is it, is it assistant brewer? Is there a head brewer? Is there a lead brewer? Is there? So, uh, no. Right now, there's, there's no real head brewer. Uh, so you're all just kind of in it together. We all, we all take a turn of being head brewer and, and assistant brewer. So we're all, we're all wearing all the hats, really. And then, um, you know, seeing somebody else's beer through to the end is also something that we do where, you know, brewing the beer is only half of it, really. Then you got to take care of, of everything else. You got to do the dry hops. You got to do the cold crashes. You got to do, uh, you know, all the transfers uh, to the bright tanks, to the kegs, you know, making sure everything is, is you know, following the process. So, you know. But, all but, having, but having four different, and it sounds like it's all, like, equal partnership kind of thing. That's, that's got to be a tough thing, right? Because, like, brewers have opinions, it is, yeah, and that's and that's home why we have, have opinions, yeah. and small brewers and big brewers have opinions, right? So we have regular meetings. I'd say every two weeks, uh, two to three weeks, to go over, you know, the new what we've learned along the way, the new processes, and um, who's doing what for the next, you know, two to three weeks. Um, so incorporating these meetings definitely, I think, is, has helped over the over the last. You know, we, we've incorporated them more and more over the last seven months, and, you know, uh, I think that's another reason why the beer is getting better and better. What, what yeah, I mean, all aspects of it are improving as we go along, and, and we're still learning as we go. Um, so when we do have these meetings, you know, uh, you mentioned earlier about planning ahead. Yeah. Uh, in the beginning, we, we fairly were. Um, so now we're talking about the next three months and – what events are coming up, what we need to brew, that sort of thing. So we are getting better in all different aspects. And, and that's sort of a fascinating thing, though. If, if you are a small brewery and you're coming from a home brewer mentality and you're brewing on a small scale, it's not like you guys started with the 15-barrel, 20-whatever system. You guys started basically as small as you could get outside of five gallons. Seven months in now... Is there something that you, you were saying, like hindsight, had we waited another three months for stainless instead of plastic kind of thing? Is there something that you've learned in the last seven months of being open to the public from a business standpoint yeah, where so the benefit of time would have would have helped you out a little bit more? The benefit of time? Um, no, more, more the, yeah, I mean the plastic really, but uh, one thing that I'm glad that we did do is start out small so we could learn and grow organically with the customers. So, you know, in a, in a year or so when we're ready to upgrade to a larger building, larger system and all that, we, we have all the knowledge, we have all the analytics and the numbers to, to prove, um, you know, all the decisions that we're going to make along the way. So you guys are thinking about another space, a larger space. Larger space? You're thinking about that we, now? Yeah, we, we're already talking about it. Um, right now, we want to do everything we can to, to maximize what we can do in our existing space. But we, in a few of our meetings, we have already discussed um, looking for a second location. Um, we would probably keep the, the small system in, in the location we're in. And then, Why is that? Um, just for test batches. Um, so maybe 
if in the second location we would hopefully upgrade to maybe a seven barrel system okay um and maybe do a few more standard uh brews our our favorites if you will and then we would keep the smaller system to keep experimenting and, and trying some new stuff how important is when you're a small system and you can actually just like you know do a couple of brews a day and you can mash in um for whatever you want to do and now you have a license and then you can sell it if it if it tastes good as well how important is experimentation for you and 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 where do you look for inspiration um yeah experimentation is is definitely huge but research is just as important so just going in to your your you know we have a small kitchen and just Going into your kitchen and just grabbing all the ingredients off off the the shelf and throwing it in your beer uh, kind of is what we've moved away from, uh, and being able to go into beersmith and really calculate how that beer is going to turn out and uh, even even taking uh, you know brewing on on even five gallon batches on something that we're completely unfamiliar with how it's going to turn out. So um, yeah, I mean I mean. And then inspiration. Where do we draw inspiration yeah. from? Uh, so we'll we'll take the hazelnut that you're drinking right now. The yeah. inspiration that I I've I hit the I've hit this site. This is like a baby growler right here. This is yeah, a it's a little 32 ounce guy. Yeah. Yeah. But uh, you know the inspiration small for that is a small growler. I like yes. it. Like, but also like glass as well, which is kind of a throwback. Like yeah. this is kind of fun. yeah. We got yeah. the 64 ouncer too, but. We we just got those thirty two answers and they're yeah they're I mean, just they're, fun they're perfect yeah, yeah. You come I, in, I interrupted grab you. two yeah. beers, um, but we'll, we'll <laughs> grab for two instance. grab two for the price exactly. of three is that is that what yes, it is exactly. yeah exactly yeah. Right, yeah and then so you get to walk out with our it prices aren't that bad <laughs> yes yeah, yeah. <laughs> so if you take uh, yeah I mean this one for instance All right, so this is you, the hazelnut yeah I mean we 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 get uh, inspiration from anywhere but my ins- my inspiration for this beer specifically was uh, I mean I love the Wawa hazelnut coffee in the morning. Okay. And uh, I was drinking that, you know, every morning on going down to uh, For presumably to a national audience, Wawa is a convenience store uh, yes. that has a goose uh, as, a, as a logo against a sunset. But it's where you can go and get coffee and a sandwich in the morning and a uh, buttered roll or a bagel or that kind of proper bagel. Exactly. Uh, or a sandwich at night or... Yes. Yeah, it's a convenience or mac and store. Cheese or soup yeah, or it's the Circle Hoagies. K of yeah. the East Coast. Yeah, I was yeah. say it's a it's a better uh, version of Seven Eleven. Oof! <laughs> wow, you're gonna just just fighting words at this point. A well, better version of Seven Eleven. We're Philly guys, you know. Um, but this is what you wanted to mimic. Was was a hazelnut? Was like a weak hazelnut coffee kind of thing? And I don't mean that in a derogatory way. No, well, I mean that was like yeah, the background flavor that I wanted. Uh, I mean yeah, I just love that 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 hazelnut. Uh, you know they have they have uh, a hazelnut creamer that you can add in there, and yeah. just a pinch of that goes a long way. So, yeah, I mean um, that's yeah that's essentially what I wanted for this beer. How it's, important is it for a brewery as small in in size as you guys? How important is it to have those touchstones, those identities, right? Because everybody who comes through your door. You're not distributing. Like people are, they're coming to your place and they're they're tasting the beer. To have that conversation with them of like, oh, think about Wawa coffee, you know, think about Wawa hazelnut, and the majority of people who come through, I'd hazard a guess to say, given your size, 
98% of people will immediately get it like I did. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, but and how, I think that's but one how of the important benefits is that for like the touchstones of of growing the business and then becoming a, a, a larger brewery? But then also, how important is it for the beers that you make in the next generation? It's pretty important. I mean, I think it's very important from um, a customer service, customer satisfaction standpoint. That's one of my favorite parts of working at the brewery is working at the bar on a Saturday afternoon or a Sunday afternoon and getting to sit there or, well, stand there and, and talk to the customers about the beer and, you know, exactly as you're saying, you know, we'll discuss different aspects, what they like about it, maybe what they don't like. Um, it's, it's really cool. That's, that's my favorite part. Yeah, and I think, uh, I mean, it's pretty important for our uh, decision-making later on, too, to hear from you guys on the front end what's working, what's not, what kind of feedback are people giving. Uh, I mean, you'll, you'll be surprised on, you know, somebody coming into a bar, how much knowledge they really have. Like, ah, you know what, I would, I would, I would add a little more of that hazelnut flavor to it. Or I, pull, I would pull it back a little bit, like it's, you know, just too sweet or something, things like that that you can take and your next iteration, which will be a week down the road, you can make that change and uh, have it ready in you know two weeks after that. So, it's well, it sounds like you guys are on a fun journey right now and trying to figure out uh, uh, what people want and and how to give it to them. And yeah, yeah, yeah we're working on a uh, hibiscus beer right now. I yeah, two of our brewers are actually back there right now working on it, and, and uh, it smells great. I mean, it smells like Snapple in <laughs> in the brew house right now. But. Awesome. Guys, thanks for sitting down. I appreciate you taking the time. Yeah, thanks for having us. Thanks a lot. Thanks again to this episode's sponsors, Blickman Engineering Pro Brewing, now offering gas-fired systems. Learn more at BlickmanPro.com. And by Vermont Tech. Are you ready to learn craft distilling as a profession? Check out vtc.edu slash distilling. And finally, we get to some practical advice on the show. Staff are critical to sustainable growth, but failure to follow a myriad of employment laws and regulations could result in costly litigation that can present a fundamental threat to a business. A few days ago, I sat down with attorney Peter Lowe, a partner at Brandon Isaacson, to talk about key compliance issues and best practices to help your small brewery thrive. When should a small brewery start thinking about its, its legal employment needs? Well, <clears throat> really, before they hire their first employee, um, you know, you're never too small to, unfortunately face um, either the attention of, of the government um, and regulations or simply complying with what has increasingly become this just this myriad of, of employment laws. So I could give you the perfect example how you can these days very innocently fall into a trap right away and you can have one employee and still be subject to many of these laws. Here in Maine, and it's applicable in other New England states as well, you can no longer ask the applicant who you're uh, considering what they earned in their last job. 
Really? Yeah. So that's now been outlawed, and it's outlawed in many states. And it's, uh, I think, a laudable sentiment, which is a view that pay inequity between genders is fostered by asking people how much they earn. And if systemically women earn less than men, which the data supports, then the argument is it's perpetuated by being able to ask that question. So, you know, uh, a, a small brewery um, who doesn't know, you know, that particular provision might ask someone, you know, they're going to pay them 15 bucks an hour. What, what were you earning in your last job? That's uh, you know, under our main law now, automatically yeah. considered a uh, form of discrimination. So hmm. uh, is the sky going to fall in if you ask that question? <laughs> Probably not. But, you know, clearly, I think most folks will want to <coughs> stay ahead of and not get themselves into you know, any, any potential problems. So uh, there's just like a, a small example. But, but it can have a ripple effect and it can lead to other problems. Yeah, sure. I mean, in, in you know, if, for instance, in ex- if a brewery is hiring people today, they're going to consider however small they are, do they want to do background checks? Um, you know, the, there is certainly a greater ability to get, gather more and more information on people. And, you know, somebody, they should be at least asking that question. I'm not saying one size fits all and every single uh, brewer should be conducting criminal background checks, but uh, because so much of this is a resource allocation as well and a time allocation. But take another example. Um, so you're hiring your first employees or, or your hundredth employee, whatever it is. Do you want to pick up this little smartphone I have in front of me and do I want to put their name in it and say the town they live in uh, and run a quick search? And you know, if I'm savvy enough, do I want to go and look at their social media? And let's say, for example, on their social media, uh, there's a bunch of racist rants. I probably would have liked to have known that before I hired them, wouldn't yeah. I? Um, and would it have you know, influenced my decision? Yeah, it, it would have. However, and this is what keeps me in business and my colleagues, there's some rules about what you can and can't do relating to that type of check and background. Really? Yeah, so you know, I can't ask you... And, and uh, these laws always come come out because someone did it. I can't say to you, hey, John, why don't you give me your social media passwords as you're my applicant, and I'm yeah. just going to run through your, your social media just to check there's nothing out there that um, we don't want to see. Um, I can't do that. Sure. But if it's out there... It's in fair the, game. It's fair game. But if you think about it, and you know, it's pretty well known, I think, by most people that there's certain things that you shouldn't ask about when, if I'm giving you a job interview, I shouldn't ask you about your religion. I shouldn't ask you about your medical condition. I shouldn't ask you about your sexual orientation. You know, the list goes on. Those are no-go areas. Those are automatically illegal. Yeah. Yet if I go on people's social media, I may well learn that information. So there's a, there's a risk-reward uh, related to that. I may get a bunch of information that I probably don't want to have and shouldn't have, but on the other hand, if there's something really bad out there, I've had I've had plenty of clients who have ended up hiring someone for a relatively high-profile public sector position, and when the public learns that they've hired you know new superintendent of schools, say here in Maine somewhere, we'll be sure that the public are going to Google that name, 
and if there's an article that they were run out of town, yeah. the last place because they were found to have their you know their hands in the till, then uh, <laughs> it's going to rebound. So you know those are some those are some of the issues that if I'm a small business, uh, I'm going to want to figure out you know what do I do in preparation to hire when I'm looking at applications? Should I be doing what does my due diligence look like? And then you get into you know obviously when you you interview them. My client, I, I, I get these, like, the worst cases, of course. The, no one calls me because they love their employee. <laughs> it's because they've done something really dumb, usually, or allegedly. Yeah. And sometimes I wonder, I think, how the hell did they hire this person? And that gets me back to this sort of hiring issue and what you should and shouldn't be doing. Because you know, however small you are, you're going to save yourself a ton of grief and just be more effective and productive and profitable if you're hiring good people versus... <laughs> yeah, versus not. <laughs> yeah. But then once you have somebody in a job, and if you're a small brewery and, and you're starting to grow and you have you know, one, maybe two employees and everything, how, how important is it from almost the beginning to have an employee handbook and to have uh, like a written set of rules so that everybody is on the same page? Yeah. You know, I... Th- think it's a fundamental today because there are so many requirements out there number one that you want you know accurately reflected in there but you know you you want to be an employer not just for legal reasons just for fairness reasons that you're going to treat people alike you're going to be consistent you know you're going to want a diverse population of employees uh, but you want to be able to then when they walk in the door they're all going to get treated in, in you know a consistent similar manner not it's not one size fits all but you know your habit will really spell out hey this is what we do and this is what we, we expect from you and then you know a classic example of a handbook is um, someone goes on to social their own personal social media and you know is posting comments about your your your, your, your customers yeah and what am I going to do about that well there's no substitute for in a handbook being able to sort of point to that particular issue and say to the employee, you know, unless it's outrageous, you're not going to fire them over it, but you're going to say, hey, you can't do this. And I said, well, why not? Well, look, it says so here. So they really do lay down some pretty fundamental principles. And, <coughs> you know, handbooks, uh, I'm not trying to put lawyers or consultants out of business, but people can find handbooks onla- uh, online. They can adapt them probably you know smart to get them reviewed but if you're very small and your resources are limited you may you know self-help on that sort of a diy handbook um, and get you started at least i think there's such a because there's so much happening in small businesses and people wear multiple hats there's certain things that get sort of pushed aside Uh, and especially in the beer industry where people are are making beer and they're sort of focused on that and selling it and getting people in the tap rooms that they're not necessarily thinking about um, the day-to-day with their employees uh, and and people who are there but it's it is important right to 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 sort of manage folks while they're there and, and and sort of like making sure that they're performing their job in the way that they're supposed to be and sure. the way that it's important to the company. Yeah, I mean, one, one golden rule is, um, you know, you've got... Every, every, every brewery here at this conference 
I can guarantee you has an employee or several employees by their size where things aren't really working out. It'd be really interesting to ask people, first of all, have you actually told them that? <laughs> and how much feedback have you given them? And this, is, this part's less legal, but more just from my, my experience working with businesses is, it's, it's Friday afternoon today. It wouldn't be at all a surprise to me that I would get a call or a text from one of my clients who suddenly says on a Friday, it always seems to be on a Friday, <laughs> we're ready to let John go. And I say, uh, okay, it's Friday. And, yeah. and they want to do it within about an hour. And I'll say to them, um, okay, well, let's not rush it. Well, we really need to do it. You know, how long has John been with you? Well, 10 years. Oh, so you waited for 10 years. But then uh, I'll say, so, so is this, is John's kind of, just gone south recently oh no he's always been like this and so then you well he's been there 10 years and so one of the things i'll say to a client is well you know show me the documents because without documents it's hard to tell a, a story if someone brings a claim uh well we don't have much <laughs> it's you know i'm not making fun of folks yeah no of course but, but you're, you're absolutely right you know they're busy doing what they want to do and what they should be doing they're not busy keeping any documentation but you know, and I realistically, a small brewery isn't going to have a file on every single employee. I, I have larger clients who, you know, there'll be an entry for the employee at least every week about what they've done, what they haven't done. Um, you know, it's a treasure trove of information. It's not going to happen in a small business. But, you know, if you've got someone who has a poor attitude, it's the, the best example. Maybe technically good, skilled, but doesn't get on with people. You know, you've got to be able to have some trail to show, one, you've written about it, two, you've talked to them about it. Because if you, when I get that Friday afternoon call, I say, yeah, bad attitude is a reason to terminate somebody. But you don't want to look like you, you or you don't want to be unfair if they didn't know about it. You know, because people dance around, let's face it, people dance around those issues. They don't want to of face course. them. So, you know, it's, 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 it's you know, man, because some, somebody, in fact, can be really technically skilled. If they have a, if they have a bad, bad attitude, they're going to impact others. It's, of course, you know, it's that suck in the workplace that is just a drain, and no one wants to really work around them. People put up with them, and you know the cases I've had where the person ultimately has parted company. It's like this cloud lifts, and the smaller the business, sometimes the bigger, you know, just disproportionate impact that the the negative person can have on on the whole work environment. So when it does come time to end a, an employee relationship or an, an employee contract. Um, what's the best way to handle that? Well, see, you're already using those very nuanced words. Like, you didn't use the word fire. Well, yeah. <laughs> I, I, I'm teasing you a little bit, but I, when I do presentations, I, somebody says, well, can we fire this person? I said, uh, we usually talk about separate uh, part company. Yeah. Uh, but I, I, in fact, it, it, words do count and the way that you do things count. And I'm, I'm a huge believer that if you maintain the dignity of the person, then you're far less likely to have an issue. So it's you know, treating people as, they want, as you'd want to be treated respectfully, even when it's a, a hard message. So um, there will be time, and I'll coach people through this and say, okay, you know, how much do you share with them? Well, you don't want to go through a laundry list and tell them of everything they've ever done wrong while they work for you. Yeah. But quite often it, you'll find and you'll conclude this person's skill set is not suited to this position. 
And so that's a different message. It's not, you know, you're, you're a good person. We, we get on very well. This is just not suited to you. Um, and there's other issues that go with that. You know, the, the notion that you tell somebody and then you kind of walk them out of the door, bad idea. Uh, you know, think if you've worked somewhere for 10 years and then your boss comes up to you, pats you on the shoulder, takes you to a conference room, and before you know it, you're on, you're on the street. Yeah. You've had no chance to. So, so one of the things I discuss with lots of clients is when it's not working out, how, how can you have a conversation with somebody to, in fact, maybe it's going to be a resignation. You know, maybe you're going to pay them, you know, two, three, four weeks of severance, severance. or notice. Yeah. How can you sort of cushion the landing rather than, you know, this much more drastic, you're fired, it's all over, uh, in the person. Because people... I've dealt with hundreds and hundreds of people who've brought claims against clients just just because I've done it long enough. Not that my clients are, are always getting sued, but the the common denominator when a claim is brought is that at the core, the person who's been usually terminated feels there's some fundamental unfairness. And unfairness is different from illegality. Mm-hmm. Uh, illegality is something different under under employment law. But if they feel that they were treated unfairly, that's going to drive them and drive them a long way. It drives them to a lawyer. It drives them to bring a claim. It drives them to pursue a claim. So I'm always telling people, you know, f- fairness is, is sort of a central principle, and you want to always you know try to make your decisions based on that. Sure. Yeah, no, I and dignity in in a in a tough situation as well. It right. seems like that's a yeah, and that can be tough, right? Because these can get contentious. It can pretty and, quickly. And, and think about it: you, you, when you're told that you're you're being terminated, you know, some people are terminated after 25 years of working somewhere, um, and you know, you are no longer welcome there. It's it's a harsh message, and people go through. The classic sort of mourning, anger, all of those same... Yeah, those uh, seven stages of grief. Seven stages yeah. of grief, thank you. Yeah, exactly what people you know, face. Is, I know it's a different issue, but you, you, know, you somewhat see that in the employment context. Um, so dig- dignity is a, a, a really good word. I'm a very big believer, actually, as well, um, in that if, I meet, if my client meets with someone to tell them that they've been terminated... They'll also provide them with a letter saying that and at a very high level explaining why. Because I think people are owed a reason and a big mistake that employers make and they're they're misguided in this notion is that this is an employee at will state. That means I can hire and fire whenever I like and I don't have to tell anybody. And I kind of say, well, kind of. But if you don't tell anybody, if you, if you fire someone and you don't tell them why, you know what they're going to do. They're going to fill that vacuum with their own reason. It may be horribly wrong, um, but that's going to be, you know, their perception becomes their reality. So, you know, explain it. And if you can't explain it, that tells me something about your decision and you probably shouldn't be doing it. If you can't, in, you know, in writing, tell them this is you know, how you didn't meet expectations or why we're parting company or whatever it is. Yeah. And in fact, here in Maine, uh, by, by law, you're also required to give reasons if someone asks for it um, in writing. So. so it's just good to know 
the basics at least and you know yeah the very high very high level uh explain i think we owe it to people it's a part of part of being respectful as well um before we wrap up i'm just curious about some of the fundamentals of sexual harassment training yeah so glad you asked about that because you know we we'd have had to be living in a a cave on the moon not to been aware of what's happened in the last two, three years, um, specifically in the employment context regarding the Me Too movement and sexual harassment. Mm -hmm. And that, that's uh, um, had a huge amount of media attention and focus. Of course. As a consequence, it's, it's always, the law hasn't changed, although some developments are happening now in reaction to that, but the law fundamentally hasn't changed. Um, but it's the one case, one claim, one issue that could not only cripple, but I think put a business out of business. And we've seen local examples of that here in Maine and, and around the country. Where of course. It's so, it's such a hot item that uh, if you find yourself as a business in the public eye and the media will report on sexual harassment, it's sensational you've kind of lost even if you end up winning the case. So if I read in my Portland Press Herald that XYZ Brewery has been sued because two female employees say that the, the owner brewer is you know, sexually harassing them, that might just be a claim that's been filed, but I'm sort but of- But memories are long. Memories are long, I take it to the bank. So you know, it's really you know, how those matters are handled when they arise and it's not ignoring them not sweeping them under the rug and training 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 um training is is required in fact here in maine by law one of i think four states still only that, that require maybe there's a couple of others coming online but we have to train everybody when we hire them and you have to train your supervisors but it's it's you know not just seeing them in front of a screen and having them answer a series of obvious questions. Yeah. Which is, but, but really, I think, in fact, you never, no one's too small to bring in someone and have a conversation with employees because employees are all going to have a different view about what's acceptable and what's not. Uh, and really, it's all about how can you work respectfully together? And if you feel you're not being treated respectfully, how do you have a voice to you know, speak up and, and an avenue to do that. And and it's not just enough to do it once. It, it seems like this is regular check-ins, yeah, uh, especially on that front. But you, you think about it. If you if you get a claim and the first question the investigators ask when they investigate these claims on the state level is, uh, show me your records that you've done the training. And if you say, oh, we missed it, <laughs> you, you know, you, you're, you're, that's it. you're yeah. already behind the game. Yeah. Because then the presumption is, well, you missed it, therefore... You, the person who did this to the other person, you know, wasn't properly trained, and you're on the hook. So there's, I, there's, there's sort of a harassment checklist. You've got to do the training. You've got to have the policies. You've got to be giving people notice each year. But when you really come down to it, it's it's when when you have that tricky issue. It's how you deal with it, how you investigate it, and you know you can end up again small businesses. No one went into a business like this to be an investigator. And, all of it, and then suddenly they're having to determine whether someone's done something highly personal, offensive, inappropriate to another person. And it sometimes is a credibility contest. So that's a time where sort of outside advice and resources can, can be extremely valuable. So 
it doesn't go south on you. You know, one case, one sexual harassment case that goes wrong is going to cost you hundreds of thousands of dollars. Yeah. By the way, insurance is a good good plug, and I'm not in the insurance <laughs> business, but there's, there's employment practices, liability insurance that employers can buy relatively modestly, and uh, probably any small business, brewer, brewers included, should have that as a, as a safeguard. So it seems the takeaway is uh, prepare, regularly check in, make sure that you have everything documented well, uh, regardless of, of what arena you're in, because uh, it'll save you time and money and frustration later on. It, it certainly will, yeah. Thanks for sitting down with me. I really appreciate oh, it. Oh, you're welcome. My pleasure. Cheers. As we close out this episode of the BYO Nano podcast, our thanks to the episode's sponsors. That includes Blickman Engineering. Blickman Engineering Pro Brewing, now offering gas-fired systems. Quiet, efficient, powerful. The 3.5-barrel gas-fired systems offer automatic temperature control and fully enclosed burner boxes. The burner boxes help keep operating costs low by keeping the heat in your kettle, not in your room. Perfect for tap rooms and neighborhood breweries. The 3.5-barrel gas-fired UL-CUL rated brew house starts at just $16,999. Order yours today. Visit BlickmanPro.com for more information. Again, that's BlickmanPro.com. And also by Vermont Tech. Are you ready to learn craft distilling as a profession? Check out vtc.edu slash distilling to get started. The five-day course is offered by the Institute of Applied Agriculture and Food Systems and is packed with hands-on experience, lecture, demo, process training, and distillery visits. The course brings students into direct contact with a variety of processes involved in building, operating, and working in the distilling industry, while emphasizing scratch distillation from local ingredients. The five-day course runs May 4th through 8th in Randolph Center, Vermont. Visit vtc.edu slash distilling. And save the dates on your calendar for this year's NanoCon, taking place in San Diego, November 6th and 7th. Full program details on the two days of brewing and business seminars targeted for nanobreweries is available at byo.com slash nanocon. Also, head over to byo.com slash nanopodcast and subscribe to the newsletter, the magazine, and catch up with great homebrewing content. New episodes of this show are released on the 15th of each month, so subscribe now and never miss a show when it's released. And you can also do us a favor by leaving your feedback on your podcast platform of choice or by emailing nano at byo.com or checking in on all of the BYO social media channels. I'm John Hall, and you can still find me weekly behind the microphone on the Drink Beer, Think Beer podcast, as well as Steal This Beer. And I hope you'll tune into those for more insight into the great world of beer. Thanks to Scott McCampbell for supplying the music for the show. And once again, be sure to check out byo.com slash nanopodcast for all your nano brewing needs. For now, we wish you all the best for a small but successful brew day.